right, how's everyone doing today? Man, I am so excited uh, to be here this morning. We had a great time at the 915 service. And um, as Pastor Jordan said there on the video, uh, my name is Andrew. Um, what he didn't mention, but you can probably tell by the face, is I am Scott's brother. And I am uh, Terry's son. And so uh, we are just excited to be here Today, uh, me and my wife, Jerrica, is sitting here on the front row. Uh, we live in Hickory, North Carolina, just a few minutes uh, up the road. And um, I just can't wait to share today this message uh, that I do believe that God has given me to share with you today. Um, before I start, I do want to thank uh, Pastor Jordan um, for everything that you mean uh, to my family. I'm not supposed to cry this early in the message. For everything that you mean to my family, um, to this church, to this community, um, I don't take it lightly that you've given me the opportunity to stand here and to share God's word, and I just want to know that I love you, and I'm thankful uh, for your life and your ministry, leading this church through every season, through every time, faithfulness to God, listening to him, and so let's honor Pastor Jordan today in this house. Jordan called me. A couple months ago, right at the beginning of January, and Jarek and I were on um, our way home from Atlanta, driving up 85. We'd been at a conference uh, called Passion. It's a Christian conference for 18 to 25-year-olds. And we'd been there for a few days, and we were driving home. And I saw that my phone uh, was ringing, and it said Jordan Green. And I was like, I mean, I just don't really answer the phone often. I'm more of a texter, so I was kind of like... I mean, do I answer? Like, I like Jordan. He's a great guy. I'm just not sure, like, should I answer the phone? I was like, yeah, I'll, I'll see. See, maybe he didn't mean to call me because we don't, you know, he doesn't call me all the time. So I was like, maybe he didn't mean to. I picked it up and, you know, made small talk for about 30 seconds, and he just got right into it. He's like, hey, I want to ask you something. Uh, you don't have to. You can say no. Uh, you can pray about it. But I want to know if you uh, will preach on the 27th. And I was like, you mean, like, like in church? Like, on like preach like he's like yeah on the 27th um you know I just feel like um God's telling me that you needed to speak that day and he's like but pray about it let me know and I don't know if it was just the fact that I was on like a spiritual high from being around all these college students for so long or if I was just exhausted we had to stay up till midnight three nights in a row and I was just not about it I was so tired but either in whatever way it was I was like yeah man I'll do it like I mean, I'll pray about it, but also I don't really have to. You know, you want to come talk about Jesus? Yes, I'll do it. So I said yes, and then like a few days, a week later, I'm like, was that a dream? Like, did I tell Jordan that I would preach at Pursuit Church on the 27th? It wasn't a dream. Here we are. So we're doing it. And I think part of, you know, following God is stepping outside of things that maybe you would normally do, stepping outside of your comfort zone and Really, that's what I want to talk to you about um, today in our time together. I want to ask this question, just be thinking about it over the next few minutes. And it's this, how, how do you follow God into unknown situations or circumstances? How do you follow God into the unknown when he doesn't give you all the details? when he doesn't tell you everything that you're going to be doing, when he doesn't give you every step of the path along the way. Because if you've been a Christian for any amount of time, or if you've read your Bible, or if you've learned 
about church leaders uh, throughout history, you'll know that this is the normal way that God operates. It's pretty rare that you find a situation where God says, I want you to do this. Here's the 10 things that you're going to be doing. Here's everywhere you're going and here's how it's going to end up. Now go do it. Super rare. Usually what God says is, go here. And then after you do that, I'll show you the next thing. But if you're anything like me, that's super difficult. That's not the way that I wish God would do it. I'm a planner. I like things organized. I want to know the next five steps before I take the first one. But this is not what following God looks like for us most of the time. So how do you do it? How do you follow him when you don't know where he's calling you to go? I was reading a book uh, this past December um, called Soul Rest, and I was reading it, and on page 162 of this book, there was a quote uh, by Corey Ten Boom. And the quote said, never be afraid to trust an unknown future to a known God. Never be afraid to trust an unknown future to a known God. Which sounds great online and on Instagram and in the book, but it's really difficult to live out when God actually calls you into an unknown place. Never be afraid to trust an unknown future to a known God. I want to look today at a story from David. If you've been in church any amount of time, if you've listened to messages or just been around Christians, you've probably heard us talk about David. Uh, Most sermons or messages on David fall into one of two categories. A lot of them are the David and Goliath type messages. We just sang about it a few minutes ago. It's the messages that, you know, God's calling you to do great things, Um, With not much, uh, you can conquer whatever God wants you to conquer. You know, it's the mountaintop experiences, like David was a man after God's own heart. Be like David. On the other hand, you have the David and Bathsheba messages. The Psalm 51, I'm a terrible sinner, I'm the worst person ever. Don't be like David, he was awful. We're confused sometimes as Christians, as leaders, on who was David But generally, that's the two categories that you hear about David. And your life is like that. You have those moments, those mountaintop experiences, or the worst failures of your life. But most of your life is lived in the middle, in between. And just an average day where you get up, go to work, do the things, and it just feels like a normal day. And much of what the Bible tells us about David is just that normal stuff. Yeah, he has the great moments, he has the great failures, but a lot of his life was just every day grinding it out, trying to become king, once he is a king, trying to lead the people. And so the the story today from 1 Samuel 22 is one of those stories in the middle that I think we can learn a lot from as we try to follow God into unknown places. The verse says this, 1 Samuel 22, 1 through 5, So David left Gath and escaped to the cave of Adullam. Soon his brothers and all his other relatives joined him there. Then others began coming, men who were in trouble or in debt or who were just discontented. Until David was the captain of about 400 men. And later David went 
to Mizpah in Moab, where he asked the king, Please allow my father and mother to live here with you until I know what God is going to do for me. So David's parents stayed in Moab with the king during his entire time that David was living in the stronghold. But one day the prophet Gad told David, leave the stronghold and return to the land of Judah. So David went to the forest of Hereth. Now to understand where David is in this moment, you have to understand where he came from. Because most people, unless you're Terry Broom, don't sit down in the middle of the movie and try to figure out what's going on. Ricky, why are they, why is that person mad at the, why are they killing them? What's happening? Most people start from the beginning and you see the scenes that lead up to the pivotal moments in the story. And the same thing is true with David. And I don't want to make the mistake of assuming that because you're in church on a Sunday morning or because you're watching online that you just know all of the stories of the Bible that we assume people know. I've learned in teaching groups and college students recently that it's really arrogant to assume that everyone just grew up with the same background and culture that we did and they understand everything about the Bible. That's not true. And so I want to help you understand what brought David to this moment where he's in the cave. We first find David in his father's house, Jesse, and he is keeping sheep. And the reason that we find him there is because Saul is currently the king in Israel. And God tells Samuel, who was a prophet, he tells Samuel, hey, I have rejected Saul as king. I'm not with him anymore. I don't want him to be the leader of the people anymore. But don't worry, I've chosen someone to replace him. And I want you to go to Jesse's house in Bethlehem. And I want you to anoint this new king in Israel. So Samuel goes to Jesse's house and he has many sons and he goes to him and he says that he's going to anoint one of them as king. And so Jesse brings all his sons out before Samuel and he's like, no, it's not that one. It's not that one. It's not that one. And finally he gets to the end of them and he's like, do, do you have any more sons? Like, have I come to the wrong address? He says, yeah, there's one more, but he's young and he's out keeping the sheep. So it's probably not him. And Samuel's like, well, go ahead and bring him in. Let's ask the Lord. And he brings David in and the Lord says, this is the one. You look at things on the outside, but I see more in him. I see potential and purpose in his life. And he's the one that I've chosen to lead Israel. And so Samuel anoints him there and then goes about his life. And we catch David next in Saul's kingdom. Saul, it says in the scriptures that the spirit of the Lord left him and then an evil spirit came to torment him. And the only thing that would give him peace, the only thing that would give him rest is if he had a musician to come and play for him and comfort him and then he would feel better. And so they asked, is there anyone that can come play? Is there anyone that we know that's skilled? And one of the servants said, yeah, I know somebody, David, in Bethlehem. He can play, he's skilled, and he can come and be before the king. And so they bring David to King Saul, and Saul loves him. He says, yeah, this is perfect. Every time this harmful spirit comes upon me, David can play, 
and it leaves and I feel better. And then one day going back and forth between his father's house and the kingdom, David sees this Goliath, this man of the Philistines who is taunting the armies of Israel. And he's like, who is this joker? Like, let's get rid of him. Why is he coming out here? Why is no one fighting him? And they're all scared too. And he's like, I just need a sling and a stone. I can take him down. I got this. And everyone was like, no, I don't, I don't think you can do that. And David ended up proving them wrong. He kills Goliath. And at this point, he begins to move up the ranks of Saul's army. The scriptures tell us that eventually he becomes one of the leaders in Saul's army. He's going out, he's fighting the Philistines. He's defeating them in battle. He's so good, actually, that the people of the country begin to write a song about him. I don't know the melody. I don't know exactly what it sounded like. But they give us the words in Scripture that Saul has killed his thousands, but David has killed his tens of thousands. Which is a great song if you're David, not so great if you're Saul. Saul's like, I'm the king, I'm the ruler of this nation, and I've recruited this man to come up to play for me. I've recruited him to be a leader in my army, and now the people are attributing more to him than they are to me. He was not a fan of that. But the people loved David. The people loved him because he was out among them. He was leading them well. He was fighting their battles. He was keeping them safe. And the people loved David. Eventually, he got the opportunity even to marry Saul's daughter, to be a son-in-law to the king. And Saul's only request in having David marry his daughter, he says that he wants him to go kill a hundred Philistines. And scripture is funny sometimes. It gives us like inside information into what a person was actually thinking. You could think maybe Saul was just trying to get David to earn his daughter or he wanted to take care of the Philistines so he has David go do that. But the scriptures say that really the reason that Saul wanted David to go kill these 100 Philistines is because he wanted them to kill David. He didn't want David to have a place on the throne. He didn't want David to marry his daughter. So he says, I got a plan. I'll have him go fight 100 Philistines and they will kill him, which is a terrible plan. David's killing tens of thousands of Philistines. What's 100 going to matter, right? So he goes out. He only, he doesn't kill just 100. He kills 200, brings them back and says, here we go, 200 Philistines. And so Saul has to relent and gives his daughter in marriage to David. But things start to go downhill for David. And one day when he's playing before Saul, um, Saul decides to hurl a spear at David and try to pin him to the wall. So David's like, guess he didn't like that song. Try a different one. (laughs) And David has to flee. Jonathan, who is Saul's son, comes to David and says, my father wants you killed. And so you have to leave. And so David flees and he goes to a land called Gath. And the people there recognize David, mainly because he's famous in Israel. They're like, isn't this the one that the people sang the song that David, or that Saul has killed his thousands, and David his tens of thousands? Like, why is he here? Is he trying here to to kill us, to cause us harm? And so David, who was a man who was very confident earlier in Scripture when he took down Goliath, is now scared. And he says that I can't stay here that I have to flee. 
And so from Gath, he leaves and he flees to the cave of Adullam, which is where we find him here in this passage. So you can imagine the mindset of David in this moment as he's thinking back to the highlights of his life. He's thinking, God told me I was going to be king of Israel. He brought me to the king's house, basically as a worship leader. He brought me to the king's army as a leader. He brought me to the king's daughter as a husband. And now here I am in a cave in a foreign country, hiding like a criminal with 400 other people who are just miserable. What, like, what is happening in my life? Has the plan of God failed? Am I not doing what I'm supposed to be doing? I thought I had a clear course to go where God told me, and I was doing everything that I knew to do right, but here I am in this place. And the scripture says in verse 3, that when David went to Mizpah, And he asked the king, please allow my father and mother to live here with you. He says, until I know what God is going to do for me. Think about how confident David was just a few chapters earlier. When he took down Goliath. When he killed all the Philistines. When he was leading the armies and had the favor of all the people. And now he's hiding in a cave and says, you know what? I'm not even sure what God is going to do for me in this moment. I'm not even sure if God is for me. There's actually two Psalms, I believe it's 57 and 142, that tell us what David was thinking. They're written by David in this moment in the cave. And you can read, get like his mindset and what he was thinking and feeling. He was struggling. I'm just telling you, read it. He was struggling. He still had a faith in God. He still knew that God had called him to greatness. But at the same time, he was saying, I know what you said and I know what I believe, but I also know what I see now and what I feel now in this moment. And where I am right now is a hard place. And I think we can learn from this because as Christians, sometimes we think that we always have to project to others and to the world that I know exactly what God is doing for me. I know exactly the call he has on my life. I know exactly what God is doing in every season. I'm blessed and highly favored. Everything's up and to the right. And then you go home and you think, that's not true. That's not how I feel. And I think we can learn from David in this moment to really be honest with where we are and honest about what we are feeling because David has this moment where he says, I believe God, but at the same time, I don't know how this is going to turn out. I don't know what God is going to do for me. This is really a moment for David of an unknown future. He had a promise, but it was unknown. What is God going to do with me? But we go on in verse 5, and it says, One day the prophet Gad told David, Leave the stronghold and return to the land of Judah, So David went to the forest of Hereth. Now this prophet, he may have been with David or he may have just come to deliver this word to him. But either way, 
He tells David, I have a word from God, and my word from God is that you should leave the place that you are. You should leave what's known. You should leave what's comfortable. You should leave this hiding place and go back to the land of Judah. And one of my favorite pastors, Craig Rochelle, says to go somewhere else, you have to leave where you are. You have to leave what's known, what's comfortable, what's predictable, and what's easy. To step toward your destiny, you may have to step away from your security. And I know when we talk about this, and this was true for David that he was changing a location, but this doesn't always mean that you have to change location. Sometimes it's a lot easier to leave a marriage, to leave a job, to leave a church, to leave anything and not deal with what's going on inside of you. And that doesn't fix anything. It just takes the problem somewhere else. A lot of times what we need to leave and what we need to change are unhealthy mindsets, attitudes, unhealthy family patterns that have existed for generations. We need to leave a place of comfort and security and we need to grow into what God is calling us to do. Leave the stronghold. And he says, return to the land of Judah, which on the surface doesn't seem like a big deal. Uh, why does it matter if he goes to Judah? I mean, isn't that like his hometown? Yes, but you have to remember why he's in the cave. He's in the cave because he's running from Saul who's trying to kill him. Guess where Saul is? Judah. So the prophet telling David, hey, return to Judah, is basically saying, hey, the place you're running from, the place you're afraid of, the place where you're likely to be killed, go back. Go back to that place. So you can understand why David would have a right to feel hesitant to go back to a place that he's running from. I know the cave wasn't luxurious, it wasn't nice, but at least he wasn't trying to be killed every day. At least he had some sense of security and comfort. But it comes to this moment where he has an opportunity to obey the voice of God or to turn away. And three of the words that he says that are so powerful they're not really what he said. They're what scripture said about him. It says, so David went. And you know, scripture doesn't give us everything that was said here. It doesn't give us everything that went on in this conversation between the prophet and David. But I imagine if it was most of us, we would have been like, cool, I have some questions. Is Saul still alive? Does he still want to kill me? Those are the two I'd probably start with. And then I'd go, well, where am I going to go? Where am I going to live? What am I going to do? What about these 400 men with me? What about my family back at Moab? Like, I need some more details. Like, give me some more information and we'll circle back. He could have said, you know, not now. Maybe later. Maybe in a few years. Maybe when things settle down when a bit, things calm down, Saul forgets about me. I'll go back then, but right now, it's just not a good time. I'm in a place that I don't love, but also I'm safe here. 
He could have said that, or he could have, he could have just said no, which is what we do sometimes. He could have just said, no, that sounds great. Maybe God told you that, but also maybe God didn't tell you that. And maybe God's telling me to stay right here where I am. Maybe I feel like I should stay here in this cave with these men. But that's not what he says. God spoke and David obeyed. God spoke and David said, I will go. My pastor, Michael Strickland, loves to say it this way. A man who's had so much impact on my life and faith over the past few years. He says this, that the miracle is on the other side of obedience. The miraculous is on the other side of obedience. We sang about miracles earlier. I'm all for them. I believe in them. I want them. Miracles don't take place on this side of obedience. We want God to give us the miracle. And then we're like, yes, Lord, I will step out now. That's not the way he generally operates. He says, step out, take a step in faith, and then I will show you who I am. Then I will show you my power. Then I'll show you what I am able to do. The miraculous is on the other side of obedience. So I asked a question earlier, what do you do when God calls you to an unknown place, but you don't know the details? I'll go ahead and give you the answer. I've learned this over the past few years. And it sounds so simple that it almost sounds like a, just not a great answer. But the answer to what do you do when you don't know what to do is do the next right thing. Do the next right thing. We all have one thing, I promise you, God will give it to you. We all have one thing we can do when we don't know what to do. You may not know five steps ahead, but you know one phone call you can make. You know one relationship that you can mend. You know one scripture that you can read. You can know one decision you need to make. You know one habit that you need to stop. It may be as simple as you don't know anything except there's one prayer you can pray, God, help. God, help. I don't know what it is for you. We all have something different. But I've seen so much over my life over the past two years that when I didn't know what to do, all I did was the next right thing that I could think of. There was always one way that I could be obedient to God. When you don't know what to do, do the next right thing. I was talking to uh, Taylor earlier about like when the band should come out at the end of the message. And um, I was like, hey, there's this section like two thirds of the way through my message from that point until the end, I'm just going to cry through the whole thing. So like any time during that, any time during that portion is fine. You can come out and play during then. Um, there's a season in my life about a year and a half ago, uh, the summer of 2020, that I was in, um, I was in a season of life where I'd been for over seven years um, Jarek and I had just gotten married in May, so this was just a few months after that. It was the middle of COVID. It was just 
a crazy time in the world in general. And during this time, I felt like that God was beginning to call me out of where I was and into something new. I felt like God was calling me out of the ministry. I was at a church. I'd worked there seven and a half years as a worship pastor. And I felt like that season in my life was coming to an end. And this was so hard for me because like I said earlier, I'm a person who loves routine. I love comfort. I love just to have, to know like what's happening in my life and to have everything planned out. And so when I felt God beginning to just stir in me this feeling that the assignment he had given me in that place was coming to an end, honestly, initially, I just kind of pushed back on it. I was like, I just don't, like, I don't know if this is right. I don't know what I feel like. This is probably just me thinking this is not the Lord speaking to me. But I started to pray about it, Jerrica, and I prayed about it, and... I started to meet with some pastors and uh, some friends who I trusted to get their input on what I felt God was calling me to. It's always smart to do that, by the way. Get some other people's thoughts and opinions. Um, you know, before you make a big decision, God puts godly people in your life for a reason. And so as I begin this journey of praying and talking, I felt confident confident from the Lord there's few times in my life where I've been confident that God's calling me to a thing and this is one of those moments where I was just like this is right but it was hard for a couple reasons uh, number one were the people and the relationships the family that I had at that place I love those people still do and to feel to, to think about having to leave and it was just difficult. I didn't, I was like, God, I don't want to, I don't want to do that. I'm comfortable. The other reason that it was difficult is because I knew God was calling me out of a thing, but I had no idea what he was calling me into. So me as a planner, me as all of those things thinking, God, you're calling me to leave something and I have no idea what the next chapter of my life will hold. This is like worst case scenario for me. Like, no, God, not this way. I know you work this way every other place and every other time, but with me, I need this to be different. But it wasn't. And so it came to the place where I had to, I'd made my decision and I began to tell people um, what God was doing in my life. Do you know how stupid it sounds to tell someone that God's calling you out of a thing with zero plans for your future? I had a degree in music and I'd worked at a church for seven and a half years. No one's beating the door down for that resume. No one's coming to hire me. It would have been so much easier to leave if I was like, hey, this other church has called me like I'm going to be doing this ministry. God's going to use it to do great things. No church was calling me. None of that. Even if I had to say like, hey, I'm leaving like vocational ministry, but there's this like company. They want me to come work for them. Like I'm going to be a light in the workplace. It's going to be this great thing and God's going to use me. None of that. 
So I'm like, what do I say? What do I say, what do I say to not sound like an idiot? And I felt like God said, there's nothing you can say to not sound like an idiot. Sometimes following me looks like that. And so I'm like, well, I'm just gonna tell the truth. It's like embarrassing or just weird as it is. I'm just gonna tell people, hey, I feel like God's calling me out, but I have no idea and no plan for the future. And I'll be honest, it was a struggle. I hated, I hated doing that. I hated the telling people. I hated even afterwards, just the struggle with like fear and anxiety, like, what am I gonna do? Like, did Jerrica just marry a stay-at-home husband forever for like no reason? Like, I'm not, there's no reason I should be home. I'm just, she's getting up, going to work. And I'm like, all right, well, see you later. See you tonight. I can't cook, so I won't have dinner ready, but you can come back home, pick up some takeout, but not too expensive because I don't have a job. <laughs> it was tough, man. Like, I was, I was struggling with identity. Like, who am I? For eight years of my life, I've been a worship leader. I'm Andrew, I'm a worship pastor. Now it was, hey, I'm Andrew, I'm unemployed. I'm Andrew, I don't, I don't know what I'm gonna do. I don't know who I am. It was a struggle. But for us, like, I knew I needed to find work, but also like church was a big thing for us. We weren't burned by church, we didn't have church hurt. Um, you know, we like just taking six months off of church and finding ourselves or sitting on the couch, or whatever, like that wasn't for us. That wasn't our flow. We wanted to find a place. We wanted to get plugged in. We wanted to make a difference. And I don't know if Hickory or I don't know if Denver is anything like Hickory, North Carolina, but it feels like there's like hundreds of churches, like the stereotypical church on every corner, like that's Hickory. So we started visiting around to so a few, but then we landed at this church, this little church plan about two years old called Soma Church. I knew who the pastor was and like barely knew two other people there. Like, let's check that out. When I say it felt like home from the beginning, like God said, you should have trusted me. I know who you are, I know you're wired. I know your gifts, I know your talents, I know your abilities. I know exactly the place that you're supposed to be. I know exactly the difference that you need to make. And so we just started attending. I started serving on the worship team. Jerrica found a place to serve. But I felt this calling that even when I was back at my previous ministry, college, like college age, college students, that was just where I felt called. That's where I wanted to make a difference and make an impact. And our church where we meet is located like right across the street from Lenore Ryan University. Perfect spot, but there weren't many college students. There just weren't many that were attending our church. And so I'm like, hey, let's just create a space for it. I don't know if anyone will show up. Um, you know, our church does like groups during the week. We live in a little condo, like 1,100 square feet. Most of those feet are upstairs. So our living room's like tiny. One parking spot for visitors. So I was like, it's not the best space but also like, let's just go for it. And so we put it out there like, hey, I know there's not many of you here, but we wanna start a college group just to talk about Jesus, hang out, um, really just get to know you. And so we were sitting there 
Um, we'd bought some cinnamon rolls. Actually, we'd bought them the day before and Jerrica left them out overnight. And we were like, can we still use these? Like, I don't wanna poison everybody our first night here. So we went out and bought doubles. So we spent like $20 that first night to host this group. And so we're sitting there and I'm like, hey, we can just like eat these 20 rolls together. If no one shows up, it'll be a great night. But 7.30 came around and 20 college students showed up to our house. There was no room. They were parking in the grass, in the road. They were sitting on the floor. I was like, this is terrible. Like this is the first and only group. It's been nice. Y'all, I will see y'all somewhere else because it's not gonna be here. And the next week they brought their friends and more came. And I was like, we have to knock out this wall. Like there's no room in here for all these college students. And we met over the course of the fall and even this morning. Like before seven o'clock this morning, we have a group message with all of our college students and they start blowing up the chat with, we love you, Andrew. We're praying for you. We're proud of you. Before anyone else, shout out to Soma College Group. And I was saying earlier that we were driving back from Passion in January and that's a opportunity we had to take some college students to worship with 60,000 other college students in a room. It was just the best experience. And then about a month ago, uh, Bailey and Cameron, who are a couple in our group, uh, they wanted to get baptized. And so our youth pastor asked me, he was like, hey, do you want to baptize them? I was like, really? Like I've never, I've been a Christian since I knew who God was. I've been in church my whole life. I was in vocational ministry for eight years. And for the first time in my life, I got to baptize someone. And I got to do it with my wife. And my pastor has this phrase that he loves to ask. First time we had dinner, he's like, hey, what's the dream? And I was like, which one? I don't know, like what dream? And at first I didn't know how to answer it. I was like intimidated by the question, like, oh, the dream, like if I could do anything, like you know how people say like, oh, I'm living the dream. And they're not, they're like unhappy, living the dream. But he's for real, like what, like if you th- could think about your life and what you'd want it to be, what's the dream for you? And so at first I didn't know how to answer that question. I'm like, oh, that's big, I don't know. But as we were standing at church a few weeks ago, we had just got done baptizing Bailey and Cameron. And I'm standing there watching the whole church packed, people crying, worshiping. You know, they taking videos of their family getting baptized. It's a big celebration. And I couldn't help but think in that moment that this is the dream. There's nowhere else I would rather be. There's nothing else that I could ever do that would be more meaningful than seeing lives changed for Jesus. And I know that you, all, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Every time I get on Facebook on Sunday, it's like, oh, we baptized 45 people at Pursuit Church today. I'm like, wow, praise God. Yeah, you can clap for that. So you know what I'm talking about and you know that feeling of what it means to make an impact. And I think about this all the time right now that 
Right now in my life, I'm living in the things that I used to pray for. I prayed for a wife like Jerrica. I prayed for a church like Soma. I prayed to make an impact with all the college students that we get to meet with every week. I prayed for these things and they happened. But they wouldn't have happened if I wouldn't have stepped out. God could have used someone else. He could have done something different. But I know in my spirit that none of this would have happened without trusting God in an unknown future. And I tell you all of this today to not tell you a story about me, like that's great, whatever. Not to even tell you a story about David. I came to talk to you today because I know so many of you are in a season like this. You're in a season where you don't know the future. You're in a season where you wanna believe God. You wanna follow him. You want your life to make an impact, but you're scared. And I know like life is, life's still hard for me. Like work can be hard. I did find a job by the way. Work can be hard. (laughs) Ministry can be difficult. Relationships are messy. Like that's just life. But there's never a day that I wake up that I don't feel like I have purpose. I always feel like I have purpose. I always feel like I have calling and I always feel like I can make a difference. Not because I'm a special Christian or anointed or any of these things, but it's just because I've chosen to follow God. It's just because I've chosen to believe that when he says he can take care of me, that he can. I can trust my unknown future to a known God. I just see so many people that are waiting on something They're waiting on life to slow down, waiting for things to change in the world. My favorite, they're waiting on someone to ask them to be involved. Like if you want God to move in your life and family, you have to take the initiative to do what is required. You have to take the initiative. No one's gonna do it for you, not even God. You have to step out and do it. And there's a Psalm, probably the most famous Psalm in the Bible. And many scholars, people who are way smarter than me, believe that David wrote this near the end of his life when he was older. And I imagine him thinking back on his life, the struggles that he lost, the battles that he won, the moments where he was unsure. And now he's looking, looking back over God's faithfulness And he's thinking, how can I communicate this to the next generation? How can I communicate who God is to everyone that I'm writing this? And he chooses this word, who who is God? The Lord Yahweh, he's my shepherd. I lack nothing. He's been faithful to lead me through every valley, through every struggle. And he leads me. He makes me lie down in green pasture. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul when it's in turmoil within me. And he guides me along the right paths for his namesake. And I know that many translations say he guides me on the paths of righteousness, which is true, like God wants us to be righteous. But I love this translation and I think it's better. 
Because I, many of us believe that God is righteous. We believe God is good. We even believe that he wants us to be righteous. We quote it all the time. We believe that, you know, he's working everything together for good for those who love him. We believe all of that in like a 30,000 foot view. But I think many of us don't believe that God actually cares about the day-to-day details of our life, but he does. God cares about every fear, every insecurity, every decision that you'll ever have to make. He cares about every job you take, every church you attend. He cares about your family. He cares about those you love. He cares about those you don't love. God cares about everything enough that he will lead you along the right path for you. I'm more confident today than I've ever been that I'm walking in the path that God chose for me. And I had no clue what I was doing. I just, I just felt leave and I said, okay, what now? I could never have orchestrated the life that I live, but he can. I don't have to, you don't have to, that's the point. He's your shepherd. We should never be afraid to trust an unknown future to a God that we know. God, I thank you this morning. I thank you that you are our shepherd. I thank you that when we don't know what to do, when we don't know where to go, when we don't know what decisions to make, if we simply do the next right thing, when we simply step out and say, God, I don't know where we're going, but I know that you're going with me. That you meet us in this place. You are our shepherd. You are the one who leads. You are the one who guides. I thank you for each person today that's choosing to take a step towards you, knowing and trusting and believing that the right paths for their life have already been carved out, that you're already going ahead of them, and that they can fully trust you. We love you, in Jesus' name.